We're going to be continuing to look at topics in Proverbs. And to remember last week, uh, Dan looked at how Proverbs talks about laziness and the sluggard. And uh, one of the things he mentioned is that both laziness and overwork really expose our restlessness. And so this week we want to look at, well, what is work? What does the Bible say work is? We're going to be doing kind of a sweep uh, going through Scripture and doing a biblical framework for work. But just to kind of recap a little bit, we've been looking a lot about wisdom, and our definition for the summer for wisdom is skill and the art of godly living, learning how to apply wisdom within the Proverbs in the right situation. So we've covered topics like friendship, marriage, money, sex, and this week we're going to look at work. But first question Many of us think work is a necessary evil. Is it a necessary evil, or is it something good? This is the question we're going to look at today. So no matter where you are on the job spectrum, where you're coming in today, the sermon has something for all of us. Maybe you're unemployed. Maybe you're underemployed. Maybe you're in a job where you're extremely dissatisfied and you're looking for a way out. Maybe you're near retirement and wondering wondering what life without a 9-to-5 looks like. Maybe you're just plain exhausted from the daily grind at your work. You're in the right place because amidst all of this confusion and all these circumstances, God's word offers us a word of hope. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the sermon. God, our Father, we ask that you would enter into this time. You'd be with the opening of your word. You would reveal its truth to us by the power of your spirit so that our lives might be more oriented to your good purpose for us. Thank you that all of your word points us to Jesus, in whom we have fullness of life, and in him we find our purpose. May you guide the preaching of your word and help me not to get in the way. Amen. So I want to talk about stories. Um, Sounds simple, but we all uh, love stories in one way or another. They they bring purpose to our lives. Um, Who can imagine life without stories? They help us make sense of things. And they help us discover more about people and places. And sometimes when we look back at our own story, we kind of discover who we are. We see our lives with greater clarity. So so much of what we learn is through story, and it has the power to change us. To illustrate this, I want to share something I learned from my dad. He was in retail management for about 20 years. He managed a grocery store. So whenever we go back to visit, sometimes I'll I'll pick his brain about, what did you learn during that time? Uh, What were some of the lessons that you learned? One of the things my dad taught me on a recent visit home is that there's always a story behind a disgruntled customer. Um, A grocery store leaves a lot of room for disgruntled customers. You don't have the product I want. The lines are too long. The list goes on. And uh, my dad shared with me the story of this elderly disgruntled man who was a regular. The story was called Cub Foods. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. But So this elderly, disgruntled man was a regular at Cub Foods who comes in every week and causes a scene, causes a ruckus. Yells at the cashiers, asks for the manager. Um, he says, why can't you get me this one product? I come in here every week and I want this one product. Basically shouting at people. Just a very angry, irritable man. So after multiple times of my dad um, having encounters with this guy, he says, I'm going to get to know him. You know, I want to hear his story. I'm just going to sit down and ask him about his life. So my dad did. He took him up to his office. 
probably gave him some coffee, calmed him down, and said, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your life like? And so this guy just spills his, spills his heart out to my dad and says, I just lost all my family. Um, I'm alone. I don't feel like I have much to live for. And I come in the store, and it just adds to my anger. So my dad befriended this man, and every time he came in, he made a point to, to spend a few minutes asking him how his week was, what's going on. And this completely changed this man's uh, life. This completely changed his demeanor in the store. He went from being that token disgruntled customer to being one of the most valued and beloved customers that came into Cub Foods. Stories help us make sense of things and discover true meaning. When we understand the real story about someone, we know how to respond to them. So we're all coming in this morning with stories of our workplace, with stories of what work is to us, stories that we've told ourselves about work, stories that have been told to us. Maybe your story is that your work right now isn't necessarily evil. I just got to pay the bills. Maybe your story you tell yourself is that you got to find a job so that you can be happy and fulfilled. A job without happiness or fulfillment is no job at all. Maybe you're coming in and your story is that your workplace is a nightmare. You have moral dilemmas you're constantly up against, and you don't want to be fighting that. You just want to work. Maybe the story you live in is where you're working to support your hobbies or your lifestyle. Maybe your story is just confusion over what you should be doing with your life, over your vocation. Well, there are many more stories that are out there for us. But in all of the confusion, all of the insecurity over work, we must ask, is this God's story for work? Is this how work is supposed to be? This morning, I want us to take all of these stories that we're bringing and to bring them to light with the story of the Bible and the story of how the Bible's view of work is. And what we find is that these compelling stories pale in comparison to how the Bible portrays work. Work in the scriptures is ultimately for us to thrive and flourish in our vocations and endeavors. And so as we look at the story of scripture, I want to ask three questions. First, what is work and why is it so hard? Simple question, but really profound. Two, how do I work wisely? And three, which work should I do? Which vocation should I pursue? So first, what is work and why is it so hard? Well, the only place to start as we reorient our conception of work to what the Bible says is to begin where the Bible begins, with the story of Genesis. Here we see the origins of work and what it is. And what we see is that work is the creational imprint of God upon us. Work is the creational imprint of God upon man. So in the first chapter of Genesis, we see God doing a lot of work. He's creating the world in six days. And then he invites man into his work. If you look at Genesis 128, it's printed in your worship guide. God says to them, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This work of filling and subduing is the same stuff that God has been doing. He invites them into his story. He invites them to co-create with him, to, to use their hands. But what, is, what are these words, filling and subduing, what do they mean? 
To fill means to increase in number, not just to replicate, but to create a human society. Subdue here is the idea that man and woman have to make the Earth's resources beneficial for them. It implies that um, they would investigate and develop the Earth's resources to make them good for human society, for human flourishing. This passage has often been called the cultural mandate because God is telling Adam and Eve to use their hands to create culture, to make stuff out of what he's given them. And this was good. This was God's design. And we also see in Genesis 2.5 a reference to the beginning of work. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Adam was given the task. He was given something to do. He was commissioned. The Hebrew word for abad here, um, or for work, is abad, and it denotes that of preparing and tending. And the word keep carries that same idea. So the image of work was that it was not something to be avoided. It was something to delight in. It was given from God. But we all know what happens in the next chapter in Genesis 3. In the midst of Adam and Eve's flourishing, in the midst of their creating, using their gifts God gave them, they turn their backs on God and decide to rebel. Sin enters the picture. The results are catastrophic. And what one theologian calls it, the vandalism of shalom. I really like that phrase because it just, it says this was utter chaos and sin interrupted. It disrupted the relationship between Adam and his work, between God and Adam and Eve. Harmony goes to disharmony. Let's look at the text and how God addresses Adam in Genesis three seventeen through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do we see in this picture? We see that the good connection between Adam and his work is disrupted. Thorns and thistles are the words used to denote that the productivity intended in the garden is no longer the case. The sweat of your brow means work becomes toil. But what is important to note in all of this is that work is not the punishment. Work in itself is not the punishment, but rather the hardship and the toil is the punishment. So to answer the question, why is work hard? We see it here. Sin has affected it. So how does this understanding of the story we've seen so far, of good work being met with sin, how does this apply to us? I think in a lot of us, it echoes in two different ways. A lot of us have an idealist view of work, and a lot of us have a cynical view of work. Um, Some of us long for the dream job nothing to do with toil or daily grind, to have something that really frees us that's in line with our passions. On the other hand, some of us have given up on that dream, and we go into work, we punch the clock. We don't strive to have any advancement. We just want to do our thing and get out and get home. Show up, do what I'm told, stay out of the spotlight, go home. 
That's a cynical attitude. These are two extremes. Maybe you're a mix of both. I know I am at times. But both of these miss the mark of the story. Work is a creational imprint of God upon us. It has been affected by sin, but we still bear his image. Work is not the problem. Our sin is the problem. We shouldn't strive to escape the realities of work. It's dishonoring to how God has designed us. I really like uh, an illustration that Tim Keller uses. He uses it often. It's of a fish swimming in water. And um, a fish is completely dependent on its environment. It gets its oxygen, its livelihood. It lives in the water. If we were to free the fish from the water, would that really be freedom? No, it would be death. The same goes for our cars. If we don't treat them well, if we don't use the right fuel in them, if we don't change the oil, they don't function how they're intended to function. So it is with work. We as modern people see work as oppressive. We seek to be free from it. But is that what the Bible says? No, it's not. God sees us as working beings living within his ideal, and this ultimately leads to freedom. It's not to deny the harsh realities that sin exists in our work. We've all had bad employers. We've all had bad situations at work. And it's not to deny that. And our work will never be as fruitful as it could. But in a Christian worldview, we know that work is inherently good. We still bear the image of God in what we do. What are some ways in which we should reorient our lives in line with this story? Maybe you identify with the caricature of the idealist. Maybe you want to have a job free from burdens, free from toil, free from hardship. Ask God to change your heart. Maybe it means settling down to a job where you just be faithful, you commit, and you be diligent. Maybe you identify with a cynic and you tend to be checked out at work. God has designed you for your work. He sees it as dignifying. There's kingdom impact in your job. It is not a waste of time. So what is work? Why is it hard? We've looked at that question. I want to move on to ask how we work wisely. So we've been going through Proverbs this summer. Proverbs has a bit to say about wise work. And as we saw in Proverbs last week, it used some really strong language for talking about laziness. I think Dan called it stinging hyperbole. But what's behind that strong language? And why does Proverbs speak so strongly about laziness? Well, because laziness is a failure to grasp the inherent goodness of work, the life-giving nature of work that we see in Genesis. And Proverbs offers us lessons for wise work. I want to look at three different lessons. Uh, the first lesson for wise work is that we work with skill. Um, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine is a text for this, which says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Excelling in our craft is what is at the heart of this proverb. It's a rhetorical question meant to be from a father to a son, and the father is telling the son, look out for somebody who does their work well. He's, he's one of them on your team. He's going to stand before good men and not men of lower character. Work here denotes a commission or a task being given, and doing a job well warrants good reception. 
It's just for us to heed, not to just get by in our work, but to become competent in our craft. So, lesson one, wise work, we work with skill. Uh, lesson two for wise work is that we, we must know what we are working for and when to stop. Proverbs 23.4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. One commentator translates this as, Don't wear yourself out trying to get wealthy. Stop because of your understanding. So what is in view here is a halting, a stopping of work, ceasing. One of the dominant philosophies of our day is work hard to play hard. Or we can often baptize that in Christian terms. I, my job is to get as wealthy as I can so I can be as generous as I can. This proverb goes against both of those notions. We don't work purely for wealth. Wealth is not inherently bad, but when it becomes our driving motivation to get up in the morning, that is not wise. So for many of us, this proverb hits with a sting, and we don't know how to desist. We don't know how to stop. And that gets tricky because... There's those moments in your career when there's opportunity for advancement. If only you'd put in X amount of hours. If only you'd reach, go the distance. There's much wisdom in knowing when to call it quits. But we labor in our endeavors to glorify God and operate how he has created us. If he blesses us with wealth, then praise God. But if wealth should not ever come to us in the way we think it should, then still praise God. So, second lesson for wise work. Know what we're working for and when to stop. The third lesson is that we should be thoughtful stewards. Please read with me. Proverbs 27, 23 to 27. It says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. For riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears, and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the rams will provide your clothing, and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and maintenance for your girls. This provides us a picture, a pretty common sense picture, of just planning for the future, of wise stewardship. It does seem pretty commonsensical and obvious, right? But if we go back to Genesis, this is good. This is wisdom of, of just being faithful, of being a good steward, of planning for the future, knowing when resources will run out, and being able to provide for your family. So Proverbs has a pretty realistic work, pretty realistic outlook on wisdom for work. And we get three of these pictures here. So the last question uh, this morning for us as we look at work is the, the nebulous question of which work should I do? Which vocation am I cut out for? Now, I don't claim to have a magic ball up here. I don't claim to tell you what God's designed you to do. Scripture doesn't give us that. So, for many of us, this is a scary question because we haven't figured it out yet. For others, it is an unwelcome question because you spent too much time thinking about it, too much time navel-gazing, too much time rubbing the crystal ball if you do that thing. Um, this is especially true of my generation, and it's echoed really well in a song by one of my favorite bands called The Fleet Foxes. I don't know if any of you have heard of them. But they, their title track on an album is called Helplessness Blues. And the first stanza of the song goes like this. 
I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't know. I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon and we'll see. These guys sold millions of records, and people from my generation loved them, listening to them. These guys are tired of thinking about what to do, and they just want to do something. They want to have a function. They're tired of the limitless avenues, and instead they want something something simpler. Who knew that parents asking their kids what they wanted to be when they grew up would cause their adult children so much turmoil? <laughs> um, but for those who are older, this still could be a scary question. Um, you might wonder if you should have made a different decision in your vocation. You might have regret over that. Like I said, my goal is not to expound on every detail of calling, not to give you a system for figuring it out, because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how we're supposed to do that, but it instead talks more about the goodness of all work and furthering redemption. I think the question behind this question of which work should I do is often this, Will I miss out on something big if I don't do the right kind of work? If I don't get the right job, will my life be meaningless? Will it be unfruitful? Make no mistake, discernment, giftings, abilities, competencies, these are all good and wise. God has uniquely wired us for different things. God is more concerned with how we work than what specific vocation we choose. God does not expect us to use some kind of algorithm to figure out what our calling in life is. If we're concerned with finding the perfect vocation, we'll never be satisfied. But the truth of the gospel is this. God is sovereign, and the Son Jesus takes our mistakes, our, our vocations we think are a waste of time, our burnout and jobs, our confusion, and offers us peace and rest. We can be satisfied in Christ. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, Come to me, all you labor, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we think about vocation, when we think about what am I called to do, that's the only place to look, to root ourselves in who Jesus views us as. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear this amidst confusion and unrest in your job, of longing for security, of longing for greater fulfillment at work. The first and best thing we can do is to root ourselves in Jesus. No job, no vocation can provide the fulfillment that he offers. And there's one more thing I must add to this question surrounding which work should we do, surrounding the right vocation. Many of us think God is more pleased in certain vocations than others. Scripture doesn't speak that way. That's kind of a dichotomy we've invented. The story of Scripture makes it clear that all work brings glory to God. There's no hierarchy of what's good and better. Just as we saw in Genesis, God saw fit to allow us to subdue creation, to work with our hands, to create, to invent. This is good and glorifying to God. I really like what Martin Luther said on this. Um, He said, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. 
what Luther is getting at is that we as Christians can take pride in what we do. The work that we do with our hands, whatever vocation that may be, is spiritual work. God delights in it. There's no dichotomy. Our work will last, and it's a picture of the kingdom. Jesus himself came into the world as a carpenter. Worked with his hands. Let us take comfort in that. So to close, I want to bring you back to what I said in the beginning about stories and how they bring perception and depth and meaning to our lives. They help us make sense of things. My hope is that you can take comfort knowing that the story of Scripture has a positive view of work and that you can rest in the fact that work matters in the scheme of redemption. You're an image bearer of God and what you do. Your work is dignified and should be done to the glory of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are indeed a good God, a good creator who seems fit to give us good things to do. And through your Son, Jesus, we can have fullness of life. We can go to work knowing that what we do is of eternal worth. And we thank you and praise you for that. And I ask that this message would sink, sink in deep in our hearts. We would take it with us this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.